Well, I think most of us know this story. It's a very familiar story. It's a very familiar account. We just did it last night in the pageant. But I'm going to read from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and then I'll paraphrase verses 8 to 20 to just set in our minds again the very reason that we're here at this particular season. Luke chapter 2, 1 to 7 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cornelius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for him in the inn. And we know how it continues on in the remaining verses in the region there of Bethlehem. Shepherds were watching their flocks at night, and they were visited by angels who tell them the good news that a Savior is born in the city of David, and you'll find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in the manger. And the shepherds make their way to the city, and they find just what the angels proclaimed they would find, and they worship the child in the manger. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful event. And the child is worthy of all worship and all of our praise and thanksgiving for his coming. And every year, our kids color this scene in their coloring pages in Sunday school craft time. Or they build popsicle stick stables and put little baby Jesus there in the manger. We have in our homes, probably almost all of you have in your home, sitting on a shelf or a mantle somewhere, a beautifully fired ceramic uh, nativity scene set out. But in our pageant, in the coloring pages, in our nativity scenes, and in most of the songs that we sing, there's something that is unseen, but it's the very reason why we celebrate this particular birth. We don't see the dragon in the stable. We see Mary and Joseph. We see the shepherds. We see the lambs, maybe a goose or two. We see the donkey. Sometimes maybe there's even a pig in there, which would be unusual in a Jewish stable, but sometimes he's there. But none of these nativity scenes that we color, that we paint, that we have sitting on our shelves, that we build... We set them out, but they don't have the dragon in the stable, but he's there. The dragon is there. And to be fair, the Gospels don't highlight the dragon either. He isn't obvious. He's in the shadows. He's cunning, but he's right beside the baby. And there are times, not all the time, but sometimes that we need to remember that the dragon is in the stable along with the baby. The church needs to remember, because we need to remember what is really going on at Christmas. It's peace on earth, but peace only because a war has been fought for us. Jesus is the promised Messiah, yes. He is the newborn king, yes. But as we saw last week, he's also the second Adam, ushering in a new creation. And as we must see this week, he is also the dragon slayer the victor over death and the devil. There's a dragon in the stable, 
but it's the child that prevails. Let's just pray as we consider the nativity scene as it will be told in Revelation. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time of the year. Thank you that we get to look into your scripture and by your Holy Spirit understand it. Even scripture that seems at first obscure, that seems confusing, you have given us this story over and over and over again, many times in many ways, from the beginning of time until the end, that we would know your son is victorious, that we're set free. Just pray your blessing as we read your word this morning and seek to understand it in Christ's name. Amen. So, decades later after the writing of the gospel, certainly many decades after these events, decades later in the history of the early church, much later in the New Testament, in fact, the last book to be precise, the disciple John tells the nativity story again, and he's telling the story in this letter called Revelation to a group of churches that need to hear the nativity story a little bit differently than how Matthew and Luke told it. In historical context, the churches in Asia and the Middle East have been suffering under Roman persecution for a long, long time now. The temple is destroyed. Christians are not favored by any emperor. Rather, they are hated by every emperor. They're regularly imprisoned and persecuted. They don't see peace on earth. And just like the disciples before them, they wonder if Jesus really is victorious. Why wasn't Jesus victorious over Rome when he was here on earth and he had the opportunity to set his people free? And they perhaps wonder, those churches, if, if Jesus is victorious after all. And so the angel who reveals this scene to John knows that the churches really need to see what's going on behind the curtain. And as disciples ourselves who live in the same fallen world, who feel the same kinds of persecutions coming our way, who suffer at the hands of a sinful world and fall into sin ourselves, we who have hope in this child born in Bethlehem that we celebrate, especially at Christmas, we also need to really see what is going on deep down and behind the curtain of this reality to see what's been accomplished in this coming. And so to those beleaguered churches and to us, the angel of Revelation gives the Apostle John a vision. The angel lifts that curtain and shows what's happening behind the scenes of this reality, which is just a shadow of the real reality that's taking place. And the angel gives John a penetrating look into the nativity scene and tells him to write it down and tell the churches, this is what happened. So the angel of God, through John, gives us this glimpse of just how profoundly world-changing that first Christmas morning was. And a lot of it will sound familiar, but you may notice a few differences. Here is the same nativity scene, and much more, from the perspective of heaven in Romans chapter 12. Revelation 12, 1-6. And a great sign appeared in heaven... A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, 
a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Sounds a little different, right? That's heaven's view of what's taking place. There's a woman... There's a child born to rule. There's an ascension to a heavenly throne. Okay, we have it so far. But now there's a dragon. There's a conflict. There's persecution. And there's also nourishment and protection for the woman. Now, there's more here than can be covered in one short sermon, but let's unpack the signs that are given here and see how they're meant to instruct us on the deeper realities of what is taking place that first Christmas morning. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, is a very summary or abbreviated description of a war that is taking place, a a war between this woman and her son versus the dragon. And the rest of chapter 12 expands on some of the details that are abbreviated in verse 6. But all of chapter 12 really is just a summary as well. It's a summary of what is taking place behind the curtain of this world's reality. It describes what's really happening in the book of Revelation. In fact, chapter 12 is describing what is really happening in all of the Bible. It's really describing what is happening all the time in this world. What is happening every day of our Christian life. And there are certainly three key people here in the events that are unfolding. There is the woman, the dragon, and the child. And we'll consider each of them in order. And spoiler alert, as I'm talking about the woman, keep in mind she sort of represents Mary. Keep in mind that the dragon is the devil and the child is Jesus. But we have the first sign, the woman. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So right away, at some level, it seems obvious that this woman would be, she could be, Mary. It's a spiritually prominent woman, clothed with the sun, moon at her feet, 12-starred crown on her head. She's giving birth to a child who we shortly will see is Jesus, the one who will rule the nations. And if we look back to Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 7 tells us, a sign will appear and a virgin will give birth. And that happened. And now the angel of Revelation says... That there is a sign, a great sign that appeared in heaven. This is the sign. Isaiah said there'd be a sign. Angel confirms that there was a sign, and it's Mary. She gave birth to this son. Sounds like it could be Mary. We're also told this woman fled into the wilderness to avoid destruction after Jesus was born. Herod tried to kill Jesus, and they fled to the desert. They fled into Egypt for some times. So this is Mary. Yes, it is Mary. And as often the case with prophecy and with revelation, no, it's more than just Mary. 
In some ways, it's almost better to think of Mary as a type of who this woman is. Mary is even the ultimate type of this woman and the ultimate fulfillment of this woman, but the symbology of this woman and the history of this woman goes back farther than Mary. This woman of Revelation 12 comes before Mary, and she actually continues after Mary as well. First, the the woman more directly represents the nation of Israel. She's symbolic of God's people who all together as a nation, through Mary, gave birth to the Messiah. The nation of Israel who at their own birth fled into the desert to be nourished and protected by God and tested there as well. A people, a nation of Israel who have been at war with the dragon from the very beginning. From the very, very beginning. Let's take this all the way back to the very first book of the Bible where we encounter a woman and a serpent. And we know this familiar story as well. A cunning serpent slithers into the peace and paradise and lies to Eve. And Adam and Eve take the bait of that lie. They taste the one fruit that they were not to eat. And thus the war begins. God intervenes and begins immediately a plan of redemption and of rescue and of victory in this war. But that plan of redemption and victory will take a long time in human terms to come about. This is what he says when that war begins. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the war has begun, and there is enmity between the serpent's offspring and Eve's offspring. There are two kinds of children from now on, the children of Eve and the children of the serpent. Cain versus Abel, Ishmael versus Isaac, Esau versus Jacob, Edom versus Israel, Saul versus David. Two lines divided by conflict in the world. Jesus said to the Pharisees when they tried to claim God as their father, he said, no, you belong to the other side. Your father is the devil. He's a liar and the father of lies. John eight forty four. Ever since Edom, there's been a conflict between the children of two different fathers. The hope of God's people since Eden, since the first Adam, is that this seed of Eve would be born and crush the head of the serpent. And in that way, God's people themselves were like an expectant mother, waiting for the promised child. Everyone who had hope in God was waiting expectantly for the seed, capital S, seed, the offspring of the one woman who would finally crush our enemy. And that child was ultimately born by one woman, born of Mary. But in another sense, Jesus is Eve's child. He's the seed. He's the offspring that will crush the head. And so this child is the child of everyone who waited and hoped for him, like Simeon, to see the child born. The whole nation was an expectant mother. The woman is Mary, but the woman is also God's people giving birth to their Redeemer. Isaiah 66, speaking of the nation of Israel, says this, Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son who, was, who has heard of such a thing, who has seen such things. Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion, and that's Israel, 
was born in labor, she brought forth her children. Zion is giving birth. Or Jeremiah 4 says it this way, For I have heard a cry as of a woman in labor, in anguish, as of one giving birth to her first cry, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath. And the woman of Revelation can also not only historically be seen as God's people, but can continue to be seen as God's people going forward later into today. Because in Revelation 12, it's after the child has arrived, the woman then flees. She continues on. In the New Testament, God's people are referred to as a woman. God is compared to a father. We're told to refer to God as him. That's how he's chosen to reveal himself. In modern parlance, God has clearly told us the gender pronoun he wants us to use for him. Do not call him Mother God. He never asked for that pronoun. He's a he, not a z. Jesus is portrayed as a husband. And we, the people of God, are a wife, a woman, a bride, the church. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. Jesus even describes his own disciples as women in labor. In John 16, he says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you, my husky, gruff male disciples, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says, you disciples are like a woman in labor. All of God's people are a woman in labor. And there's one final clear indication that the woman is Israel and God's people as well. Revelation tells us the sign of this woman is that she's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head are a crown of 12 stars. The sun, the moon, and 12 stars on her head. And if we go back to Genesis again, we'll see that this particular sign was given to us before. You remember Joseph in his coat of many colors. Joseph did not get along with his brothers, not even really all that well with his father and mother. They were annoyed with him at times too, because Joseph kept telling them about strange dreams that he was given. And here's one particular dream of his that really got under their skin. Genesis 37.9 says... Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Hmm. Sun, moon, and eleven stars. Well, what's that? Genesis, if we read on, continues. But when he had told this to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother... And your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you. So Jacob understood it. The sun, the moon, and the stars are he and his wife and his children. The children that will go on to form the tribes of Israel. This is Israel. It's Jacob and Rachel and the eleven brothers. And of course, Joseph doesn't include himself in his own dream. So he's the twelfth star. The sun, the moon, and twelve stars, the whole family giving rise to Israel is the symbol of God's people. The woman is Mary, and the woman is Israel, and the woman is us, all who hope in God, the church, and people who also find themselves in the desert, persecuted and pursued and in need of nourishment and safety. There's a threefold revelation of this woman. But then John was given a second sign. 
the sign of the dragon. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Well, this one's a little easier. The dragon is Satan, or the devil. And if we want to know that, we just look at verse 9 a little further down. Revelation 12, 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It would be nice if the rest of the figurative language of Revelation was that easy to interpret as this figure of the dragon. John says, the dragon is Satan. Okay. little, you know... You know, maybe a summary like that would be good for the rest of Revelation too, but that's fine. We'll take it for the dragon. And we have our obvious allusion to Genesis again here, don't we? The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who's called the devil, the deceiver of the whole world, right? This is the same enemy as in Eden. Same serpent, deceived Eve, it's deceiving the whole world. It's Satan. That's what Satan does. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He gives out half-truths. He gives out incomplete statements. He casts doubt. He's happy just to twist things a little bit, so we just miss. And in verse 3, we're told he has seven heads, perhaps a sign of his intelligence and his cunning. He has seven horns, horns being a sign of strength and power. It's his current strength as he pursues the woman, God's people, in this world. And he has seven crowns, which indicates, of course, rulership of some kind. He's a a prince of some sorts. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the current prince of this world, present power in the world. Now, it's possible at this point that the angelic author of this vision intends the readers in the first century who are reading this in context as John writes to the churches in Asia and in the Middle East. It's possible the angel wants the dragon specifically to be associated with the city of Rome and the Roman Empire. Rome is the city that was built on seven hills. It was divided into ten districts. It was a symbol of the pagan world in this era. And to the readers of the time, Rome was literally the nation that was persecuting the churches. If you were to say, who do you think the dragon is who is chasing the woman? They would say, it's definitely Rome. That's the dragon that's chasing us right now that we need help from. But even if it is literally Rome for them, what is clear in this revelation is that Rome isn't really the important thing. What's important is that there is a power behind Rome Just as today we know there's a power behind the powers of the world. There's a prince who sits behind all of ancient Roman paganism and all modern paganism, who is the director of all present-day idolatry as well. What's important clearly is not whether we, you know, figure out if this dragon is supposed to be Rome and then try to figure out, well, if it's Rome, then it means this and all those other things. What's important here, obviously, is that it doesn't really matter if it's Rome. The problem is there's a dragon, there's a devil who's behind it all. That's what's important. It's the devil. He's cunning. He's powerful. And he's a ruler. 
And as a little interpretive tip, that's a principle that's true of almost all the symbology of Revelation. Don't try and wedge interpretive ideas into places they don't belong. People can get really distracted trying to figure out what the seven heads and the ten horns and that means. And if you look over all the earth, you can inevitably find places where the number seven and ten fit. You know, like there's seven stars on the Hyundai car company logo and there are ten members on their board of directors. And so therefore, Hyundai is the beast from the east. And it's like, no, Hyundai just makes really good all-wheel drive cars. And, you know, so just be careful. Like, we don't have to nail down that the devil is Rome, and that doesn't have implication. The angel wants us to see that it's Satan. That's the important thing. So guard yourself against, you know, trying to wedge symbolism in there where it doesn't really need to belong, especially with any kind of attitude of confidence. And if you approach Revelation with confidence... I give you full marks for arrogance because revelation is hard. (laughs) But verse 4 then elaborates on this dragon, says his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to earth. And again, what are the stars? Well, the stars could be angels that he caused to fall, that he dragged into his own rebellion, or they could be the Jewish people, the sons and daughters of God, who are sometimes portrayed as lights, uh, who were slain in mass persecutions. Or like the sign of Mary, the stars and the Satan and, and, the, and, the, de- and the dragon could represent both, could be Rome and present day, could be the stars and the Jews. Daniel Chapter 9 speaks of a powerful horn, a ruler that rises and attacks God's people with a force that reaches the host of heaven, he says. And the Jewish people saw that prophecy of Daniel fulfilled in general... Antiochus Epiphanes, when he attacked and defiled the temple in 167 BC, but then they saw that same power and the devil behind that power again in 70 AD when the temple was overthrown. And now, like in Daniel, so in Revelation, what the angel is revealing and John is recording is that behind those rulers and behind those events, it is the devil who is at work. But most importantly, though, we see that the devil is the one lurking in the shadows of the very stable at Jesus' birth. The angel says, you didn't see it, but this is what heaven saw. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He wanted to devour the child, destroy the child, The dragon is the power behind Herod that pursued Mary and Joseph and Jesus into Egypt. He's the power behind all of the hatred directed towards Jesus. The dragon hates the child and the woman. The serpent hates the children of Eve. The devil hates the people of God. He is strong. He is cunning. He wears crowns because he has some temporary authority in this world. Temporary authority to lie and to deceive. And he will destroy you with lies because he hates the child and he hates you. He will lie to you about yourself, about others, about the church even. He will specially lies to you about the word of God and about Jesus. But there's another person present here as well. There's the woman, there's the dragon, but there's a most unexpected challenger, a victor over this dragon, a baby. And that's just how God does these things. It's never what you expect. So 
says in verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So this son born to the woman is Jesus Christ, and the imagery here is reflecting back on Psalm chapter 2, which reads, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And if you want to go even further back, it's also an allusion to Genesis 49.10 as, as Jacob, the father of Israel, and the twelve tribes of Israel is near death. He's pronouncing a blessing over each son. And to his son Judah, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so from the line of Judah... For following Eve was going to have offspring, and there was going to be a capital S seed, an offspring that was going to crush the serpent. Well, from Eve, we get to Jacob, we get to Judah. And from Judah's line came the line of Israel's kings. From the line of the seed of Judah came David, and from David came Jesus. And the throne of Israel was established in Jesus forever. The offspring of Eve in the line of Judah. Psalm 2 prophesied about a Messiah that would come with an iron scepter to rule the nations, especially the pagan nations. The child Messiah has an enemy, though. The dragon was waiting to devour this child. But, verse 5 says, but, verse 5 shows us, instead of devouring the child, the dragon fails, and the child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, I told you that these verses were an abbreviation of an abbreviation. How do you like that summary of Jesus' life? He was born and ascended to heaven. That's an abbreviation. There were some things that happened in between there, like some important things. Angel says, nope, this is it. This is what you get. The rest of the Bible will elaborate on the rest of it. But specifically, not only was he born and ascended to heaven, it says he ascended to his throne. Jesus did not ascend to heaven defeated. He ascended to heaven to rule and does rule even now, today, reigning and ruling. He's ascended victorious. He's claimed the promised throne. He's ruling even now, even though the conflict still has some time to come. It's not quite over yet. The conflict with Eve's children and the serpent is still going on. He's fighting a rear guard fight. He's mortally wounded. And he's angry. And he's still fighting. He still hates. He still lies. He's still trying to destroy. But the vision isn't over yet. God has a place for his people. God has a place for the woman. After the birth, after the attempts of Satan to destroy... She has a place to run. God has a place for his people in this temporary time, times and half a time, there is a place for his people in the wilderness, we are told, where we are nourished and protected even during these last days. The wilderness in Scripture is always pictured as a place of both safety and testing. In the wilderness, Israel was safe from Egypt, but also tested as they approached the promised land. In the wilderness, Hagar found protection and testing of her faith in the promises of God. In the wilderness, Elijah found nourishment, but then was challenged 
in continuing his ministry. In the wilderness, Jesus was tempted and comforted. And so when the book of Revelation, when the Bible talks about wilderness, it's always talking about a place of safety, but also of testing. Well, so what? I mean, this is an interesting study in Revelation, but what does it mean? These first six six verses remind us of two crucial truths if we're to persevere in hard times. Because we all have hard times. We're all suffering. Some people, it's more obvious. Some people, their suffering is right out there for everybody to see. Other people's suffering is more internal. It's in their family. It's in their heart, even. It's covered up. But maybe you feel like you're in the wilderness right now. Maybe you feel like there is a very powerful, cunning, hateful enemy who's been pursuing your life. It's the only explanation that things can be going on in your life are going on. Somebody must hate me, and somebody's going after me. What the angel wants you to see is, that's true. And you may say, feels like my life is a wilderness. And the angel wants you to see, it is. That's true. We are in a wilderness right now. It's exactly where the Bible tells us we should expect to be. It says we are strangers in a strange land. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom that are not yet home. The devil still roams, seeking to devour. We live in temporary earthy tents, Peter says. And he says of his own tent that before I fold up my tent, I want you Christians to know what's really going on and what's important. And he says in 1 Peter 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, because when you're in the wilderness, you're tested, not just protected, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is an enemy who is hell-bent to destroy you. And he doesn't want you to trust Jesus for your joy or your satisfaction. He wants to distract you with lies. He failed to devour the child, and so he's doing the next best thing. He's going after every child of that child. He wants to distract you with lies and false hopes, distractions of the world, idols in the world that will capture your attention, that you will hope in, whether it's the affection of others or whether it's your family or whether it's money or whether it's your career or fame or appreciation or recognition. He will get you to hope in something for your satisfaction and it will ultimately fail you. And he will distract you with whatever else is going on in the world and he will distract you and tell you half-truths about who Jesus really is and what Christian really are and what the church really is and what the word of God really says and he will try to deceive you in every way that he can that's our enemy and the conflict is not always out here in the physical world it's in the spiritual it's in your heart that's why you feel it there but what the angel revealed to John is exactly what the angel knew John's readers needed to see what we needed to see that what, what we feel from this enemy who is after us, what we're feeling from the enemy of Rome, the world, the strong persecution, the feeling of our weakness and our vulnerability, the apparent defeat in this world, what the angel wanted those churches and us to see is that is not what is really happening behind the curtain. 
Behind the curtain is victory and glory that this world can barely see. What lies behind a helpless child lying in a manger is a promised king, an already triumphant king, a king sitting on his throne and who has promised to bring his people home out of the wilderness. That's what the baby in the manger is really all about. We don't see the dragon in the stable. But the dragon is the reason the baby had to come. The dragon is defeated, and we are victorious with our king. Amen. Amen. A child bringing victory over our ancient foe. Let's pray. Father God, we can just unpack layer after layer after layer after layer of what happened literally in a moment when your son was born. The moment he drew his first breath as one of us, humbled himself to take on dust. Satan knew he was beat. It was done. He was finished. All he can do is lick his wounds and take shots at your kids and fail even at that. Father, we feel his cunning. We feel his temporary authority. We hear him roar, but we know that we are safe. You have given us a place to run to. You've given us refuge, even though it is also a time of trial for a time. It is ultimately our time, of our place of refuge. And so, Father, we just give you thanks for that. We give you thanks that we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. We give you thanks that these mortal bodies are just temporary tents. We don't have to think that this is the best we're going to have. We have a temple awaiting us in glorified bodies that will outshine the stars. Father, everything that was going on behind the scenes at that stable in Bethlehem is so much more real than even what the shepherds saw more real than we can comprehend. And so, Father, continue to give us the hope and the confidence, the joy, the celebration that the child most unexpectedly slew the serpent. And we are free. Father God, thank you for your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.